Welcome to the Damascus Road Podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. My name is Megan, and I want to tell you that things just end up in our house. Are you missing a water bottle or a pair of sunglasses? Probably at our house. Are you missing your sweater or your lunch or your child? Probably also at our house. People come to our place and then they depart, leaving little bits and pieces of themselves behind. It has become such the norm that we now have this designated basket in our entryway for all the things that belong to other people that were left at our house. On that note, do you own a piece of green Tupperware that you've been missing for approximately half a year? If you do, we have it. And we have forgotten that you own it. And we have been waiting for you to realize that you don't have it anymore. We've had it for so long that we have even tried to like pawn it off on other people. But be rest assured that your community is noble and honest and it refuses to take the green Tupperware that is not theirs. So it's yours. You now know where it is. It is here at our house. Now, recently something ended up at our house that I have no idea where it came from or whose it was originally, but it was one of those like little popper things where you pull the string and it like explodes and glitter and confetti. Very fun, but definitely an outside sort of toy. Well, on Easter morning, our son Roland, who is four and a half, um, discovered this mysterious popper where we don't know where it came from while searching for his Easter eggs and his curiosity was piqued. Mama. What is this thing, he asked. Nothing, baby. Please put it away, my standard response. And he did. He is very obedient. But then sometime later, after like the chocolate bunny eating and the story reading and having breakfast, the popper magically rematerialized on our coffee room table. And I asked, what are you doing with that, Roland? I told you not to play with that. I know, Mommy, he said. I'm just looking at it. Uh-huh, I said. Don't touch it. This is a special thing that we only play outside with. Okay, Mommy, he said. I won't touch it. I then went upstairs to get dressed and ready for church, which you may be thinking in your head right now. Ah, foolish woman, so trusting I see. Such is your downfall. And you would be right. There was glitter everywhere. In fact, I think there is still glitter everywhere because as Dimitri Martin so wisely observes, glitter is the herpes of the craft world. There is no getting rid of it. But this story is not about foolishly trusting your four-year-old child with forbidden fruit, but rather this story is about the good and noble choice that Roland made, a choice that I hope that we can emulate. Because as I was no more than halfway through curling my hair, up came Roland who knocked sweetly at my door and stood there with tears shimmering in his eyes and his lip trembling. And he said, Mommy, I'm sorry. I touched the thing you told me not to touch. And I knew that there would be glitter everywhere. 
and that we wouldn't get to enjoy the popper together later. And that it was just another mess that I was going to have to clean up. But I was so proud of my son for making a wrong choice. And rather than hiding or lying or blaming, he came up to me and confessed, Mommy, I'm sorry. I touched the thing you told me not to touch. And that is so hard. I know how hard it is for me to make a mistake, to make a wrong choice and then to have to own up to it and apologize to the person I hurt. I know how crummy you feel and how afraid you are about how they would respond and how they'll be angry with you, how much you hate yourself and wish that you hadn't done it, how much bravery and trust it takes to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And I've done a lot worse things than getting glitter all over the floor. And I'm sure you have too. We have all done things that we're not proud of, that hurt other people, that hurt ourselves. We have things that we're ashamed of, that we don't feel good about. Things we wish we hadn't done or choices we wish we'd made instead. We are not perfect. We make mistakes. And the shame that we experience of the wrong things we've done often pushes us to hide or to lie or to blame. To deal with the pain of those hurt, of those wrong choices, we often choose to distance ourselves from God and from others and even from our own selves because it is just too incredibly painful to look our sin and brokenness in the face. But that's what we're talking about today. How can we bridge the gaps that we've created between ourselves and God? How do we deal with the wrong choices we make and the hurt that they cause? How do we move through the shame and the hiding to reestablish relationship with God? How do we confess and come to God and say, Daddy, I'm sorry. I touched the thing you told me not to touch. How do we make it right again with God? We're going to look at the story of a man named David who made a series of very bad choices and caused a lot of hurt. But what's really wonderful about David is that he models for us how to deal with our imperfections. Rather than expecting that we never make mistakes, David, who's a man after God's own heart, shows us how to make a mistake and then how to make it better. He shows us how to repent, how to confess, how to come back to God. And another really beautiful thing about David is that he's a musician. And so like lots of musicians, he processes his emotion in his life through songwriting, which is really advantageous for us because the song was written down and we can use it to sing our own songs of repentance. So let's get started. Um, this song of repentance is Psalm 51. If you have your Bible, you can uh, follow along there or the things will be up on the screen. And we're gonna start with like the introduction before the song even starts. So it says for the choir director, a Psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So if you're wondering what the mistake was, this is the mistake that we're talking about, David committing adultery with Bathsheba. And it's a big mistake, obviously. It is not okay to sleep with other people's spouses. Now, the context of this mistake can be found in the book of 2 Samuel, and I highly encourage you to take a look at that this week because it's a really long and complicated story that I don't have the time to dive into today because our focus this morning is not why the mistake happened or the choices that led up to that mistake 
or how to not sleep with other people's spouses. Those all are very good and helpful things. Um, our focus today is on repenting for mistakes once they've happened, regardless of how we got there. But just for your kind of like background knowledge, this is a quick summary of what happened. Okay, you guys ready? Okay. David lusts after a married woman named Bathsheba. He chooses to have sex with her, even though she's married, and possibly even rapes her, because consent is hard to give when a king sends for you to come to his bed. He then impregnates her. He attempts to cover it up. When he is unable to cover it up, he murders Bathsheba's husband so that he can legally marry Bathsheba. Which is just a summary that doesn't even encapsulate all of the things that go wrong. Um, but a whole lot of not good. And hopefully your bad choices do not include murdering someone. But even if the wrong choices we make aren't to like the same degree as this, it is really helpful to look at David's repentance process that he does in this psalm. Because regardless of the mistake, whether it's a big one or a small one, we still often follow this like same pattern as David does in response to our poor choices. So let's take a step back. At the very beginning of this psalm, David mentions regarding the time that Nathan the prophet came to him. And you might be wondering, hmm, what is that about? Well, shockingly, David's first response um, to making this bad choice was not to repent. His first response was to cover it up, deny it, hide it. And this is often our first instinct too when we've messed up. We deny that it's wrong. It's really not that bad. I bet other people do it too. Lots of people do this. Does God really care if I do that? I don't think it talks about it at all in the Bible. Is it actually wrong? So what if I do that? That's just how I am. I can't change it. Well, if they hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have had to do this. It's really their fault. Like David, we can spend a long time denying that a choice that we're making is wrong. And if you do this, don't worry, you're in good company. My kids do this all the time. They frequently will squabble over Legos and the coveted green piece. I don't know why it's the most highly prized piece, but for whatever reason, the green piece is. And at some point, the debate over who gets to play with the green piece this time escalates into physical violence. Um, and then I have to intervene. Roland, you can't hit your brother in the face. You need to go to timeout. And Roland's first response, um, like many of us, is to deny. To deny that his hitting is in fact wrong by this clear sibling logic. But he hit me first. Classic. Yes, perhaps. But his wrong choice does not make your wrong choice okay. They are both wrong, regardless of order. You are denying the fact that you too have done wrong and now need to suffer the consequences of your poor choice in timeout. Oftentimes, we deny. And David needs the prophet Nathan to step in and intervene and to point out the wrongness of his choices. Because recognition of wrong is the first step of our repentance journey. So here's how David starts his song of repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. 
Do we recognize our rebellion? Some of what keeps us from repenting and restoring our relationship with God and ourselves and others is not even realizing where we've gone wrong. I know that I've definitely had times where I was so self-righteous or so angry at what the other person was doing um, that I was blind to how my choices were hurtful and wrong. And a lot of being able to restore those relationships and get right with God involved recognizing my own rebellion, regardless of what else is going on and owning my part and my poor choices. And it can be really hard to recognize our own rebellion. Jesus talks about having planks in our eyes. And so God will often use other people to help point out where we're wrong. He does this over and over throughout the Bible through the voice of the prophets. Prophets like Amos, who we'll also be looking at a little bit later this morning in conjunction with David. And God uses the prophets to point out hypocrisy or um, blind spots or where we've gone wrong. Now, you may not have a literal breathing prophet pointing out your rebellion to you, um, but we can still engage with God himself. Read the Bible and the prophets. Spend time with God, giving him consistent, uncluttered space to talk to you. Listen to the small voice of conviction of the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Ask God for help in seeing where you're wrong. And God may also give you a literal leaving, breathing prophet, um, or at least a friend or loved one who loves you enough to lovingly correct you. It's not easy to be told that you're wrong or that you've made a mistake or that you might need to grow. I know that I immediately start to feel like really defensive and self-protective when I get constructive feedback. I remember this time um, several years ago where my sister called me out on my language while driving and I felt so bristly and I immediately wanted to deny like, it's not that bad. Everyone has road rage. This is normal. And did you see how that person cut me off? Like clearly they deserved that unkind adjective I assigned to them. But if we can lay down our defensiveness and denial, God can use other people to help us grow and to see ourselves in ways that we're really blind to and to lovingly invite us into repentance and change. So, if God gives you a Nathan, be open. If you don't have a Nathan, consider asking someone to give you some kind and loving feedback if you're actually ready to hear it so that we can recognize where we've gone wrong and how we might grow. So that's our first step on the repentance journey. We've got to recognize our rebellion. David has done that. So let's see what's next. This is in verse four. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. So here we're moving from recognizing our rebellion into reckoning with our rebellion. We not only have to recognize that what we've done is wrong, but then also recognize the gravity of it, the extent of the pain and the hurt and the suffering it has caused. And you might have noticed that in verse 4, David says, against you talking to God and you alone have I sinned. Now, if you remember the story that we talked about, obviously David has not merely wronged God. 
He has deeply wronged many people, most notably Bathsheba and Uriah, the man he murdered. Um, but in this reckoning with his rebellion, David is processing and confessing and recognizing that all sin is ultimately an affront to God as well as to others. He didn't just hurt God, he also hurt others in the same way that we do with our sin. So in this reckoning process, we have to step into the lives of others and see the impact of our choices on them. We have to acknowledge the depth of our own brokenness. We have to see our wrong choices in the light of God and his goodness and holiness. David reckons with his rebellion and he begins to understand the gravity of what he's done, the trust he's betrayed, the family he's destroyed, the man he murdered, the woman he tore away from her marriage and impregnated, the impact on the nation that he leads and his people that he's sworn to care for. The reckoning allows him to see how evil his choices were and the judgment that he deserves, the divide that he has created in his relationship with God and others. And this is an important part of the repentance process because it's hard to repent for something that you don't realize the extent of. And I know that this part is uncomfortable. It can be easy to wanna like jump right over this and say, I'm sorry, but what are you sorry for? Do you realize the impact and pain and hurt of your choice and really know what it is you are apologizing for? But then David makes a shift here that I think a lot of us do, where he goes from saying, I have done what is evil in your sight, to for I was born a sinner. And this is a shift that we need to be really careful about uh, when we're reckoning with our rebellion, because the point of the reckoning is not to shame us. It is not to define us or our character as a person. It is to reckon with the wrongness of the choice, not the wrongness of you. It is the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is good. Shame is not. In the reckoning, it can be second nature for a lot of us to slip here, to go from I have done wrong to immediately I am wrong. Rather than remaining focused on the choice or the mistake, we internalize the choice or mistake as our identity. Instead of, I said an unkind thing, it's easy to berate ourselves as I'm such an unkind person, or I'm such a jerk, or I suck. And you can see this shift in David's psalm as he is reckoning with the death of his wrong choice and struggling to separate his identity from the choice that he's made, from I have done what is evil in your sight to for I was born a sinner. Because God says that our identity is not as sinners. The New Testament refers to followers of Jesus, not as sinners, but as saints. 
We have a new identity, not in sin or in shame, but in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. We are dressed in robes of righteousness because of Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. Even in repentance and reckoning with the extent of our rebellion, we need to hold tightly to the truth of our unshaken identity in Jesus as dearly loved sons and daughters of the King. This is our identity, not shame. Now, this shaming shift is really harmful to our repentance journey because shame always wants us to hide. In the garden, when Adam and Eve touched what God told them not to touch, they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness and they hid. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Shame wants us to hide from God, from others, from ourselves. Shame makes us afraid of being seen, of being known afraid of being judged or found unworthy or deemed unlovable. Shame tells us to hide as much as we can. Delete the photos, clear your cash, tell a white lie, pretend you missed that email, fake being sick or busy, avoid that person or situation. Shame tells us to say one thing and to do another, to not reveal too much, to keep things superficial and light, Shame tells us that if people knew, if God knew, then we would no longer be loved or accepted. So we choose to hide what is wrong. And this is a fundamental instinct in human nature, to feel shame and then to want to hide, especially from God. When I feel ashamed, often the last thing I want to do is talk to God about it um, because that would require looking at the part of me that feels very painful and opening up to the judgment or disappointment or anger of God that I'm expecting. I feel so awful about this. Wouldn't he? Won't opening up just make me more vulnerable and hurt than I already feel? Can I bear the weight of his judgment? But when Roland came up the stairs with tears in his eyes and confessed, Mommy, I'm sorry. I touched the thing you told me not to touch. I did not yell at him. I did not scream at him. I did not tell him I told you so or how could you. I pulled him in my arms and I held him and I stroked his hair and I told him, Thank you for telling me. Mommy loves you so much. This is the core of repentance. It's not running from God and hiding from him and sitting in shame. It is coming back home to him. In the book of Amos, the prophet writes a funeral song to convince the Israelites to do just this, to repent, to come back home to God. Now, this is what the Lord says to the family of Israel. Come back to me and live. Don't worship at the pagan altars at Bethel. Don't go to the shrines at Gilgal or Beersheba, for the people of Gilgal will be dragged off into exile, and the people of Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Come back to the Lord and live. 
When you are in shame and you want to hide, don't run. Don't run to distraction or numbing or workaholism or trying harder. Don't worship at the altar of whatever it is you think will make you feel better, less shameful that will make things right. Simply come back to God and live. And this is what God has been saying through the whole Bible. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the heart of God's message to us. Come back to me, turn to me, turn away from sin and rebellion and shame and turn towards God and life and love. When Jesus told the radical story of the son who made every wrong choice in the book and found himself ashamed and bereft, but chose to turn back home, what was the response of the father? Beratement? Isolation? Rejection? Anger? No. The father ran to him and hugged him and kissed him and rejoiced over his son who had turned back and come back home. This is the heart of repentance, coming back not to the judgmental, angry, shaming arms, but the loving, forgiving, rejoicing arms of your father. The word repentance itself in the Old Testament shuv means simply to return home, home to God, home to the arms of the Father who loves you so desperately and is not mad at you nor ashamed of you. You don't have to hide. You don't have to run. God will be so gentle with your mistakes and your brokenness. And he will hold you close in his arms and say, I love you. So how do we come back home? David models this for us. In the midst of his shame storm, David makes the turn. He says, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. David combats the shaming messages that he was telling himself about his identity as a sinner, as being the worst, as being so broken with this but. But you desire honesty. Coming back just starts with being honest. God already knows our honesty isn't about letting him in on this big secret that he had no clue about until we told him. Our honesty is about us stopping hiding, about stepping out from the trees and being willing to be seen by a God who loves us. This is the scary part. This is the part that you fear will hurt the most. But this is the path to life. John Mark Comer writes, do not misunderstand the true nature of repentance. Most people think of repentance as a heavy, somber religious duty. In reality, authentic biblical repentance is a life-giving art, renewing the entire soul. Take a look back at God's call from Amos. Come back to me and live. Notice the and live. Life and repentance are a package deal in scripture, and this shows up all over the place. The prophet Isaiah tells us, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust in your strength. 
It's in his famous sermon, Peter echoes the exact same truth. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Life and repentance are a package deal. And David knows this. This is what we see him longing for next in his psalm of repentance. This is verse 7. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Now in the middle of your repentance journey, it might not feel very joyful or refreshing yet, and that's okay. David here is still in the middle of his repentance journey, in the middle of reckoning with his wrong choice and being honest with God and with others about it. But he knows from personal experience that the next step in the journey is refreshing. Let's take a look at an earlier psalm. This is Psalm 34, where David sings about this truth. I prayed to the Lord and he answered me freeing me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. I cried out to the Lord in my suffering and he heard me. He set me free from all my fears. For the angel of the Lord guards all who fear him and he rescues them. We are so often afraid to turn to God afraid that the lies of our shame will be true, afraid that he will treat us with the same contempt or disappointment or anger of our parents, maybe afraid that he won't even care. But God is a good, good father. When we turn to him, he frees us from all of our fears. No shadow of shame will darken your face. You will be radiant with joy. He hears you. He rescues you. And God does not expect us to be perfect. We do not have to be perfect in order to engage in a relationship with God, because then none of us would be in a relationship with God. The cushion of God's grace is so soft that it is us traversing the distance back in that matters so much more than whatever reason it was that we left in the first place. When Roland came to me and confessed what he had done wrong, was there any part of me that wished that he had hid or pretended or lied or distanced himself from me to avoid punishment? No. My relationship with him matters so much more, and I was not angry. I was proud of him for coming to me. God wants you to come back to him, and there will be no fear or shame. There will be refreshing and joy. God cares so much more about your relationship with him than whatever it is that you've done wrong. And there are two parts to this refreshing and joy. And the first is that restored relationship with God. God is the source of all love and joy. And so when we distance ourselves from him, we inherently distance ourselves from joy. It's like when you're on the outs with your best friend. When you apologize and work through your conflict, there is so much joy in being back together again and eating ice cream and watching The Bachelor. I don't know what you do with your friends, but The Bachelor is so much fun, more fun with the commentary of your best friend. It's like that, but like a thousand times better because it's God. And the second part of the refreshing and joy is the realignment of our lives that comes with repentance. 
So when we do something wrong, um, it's not wrong just arbitrarily or for wrong's sake. God's not up there just coming up with like rules, like how can I get them to mess up? Um, it's wrong because it hurts us and it hurts others. And it's a sucky way to do life. Doing life God's way feels better. It is more joyful and more refreshing. David has done this first hard, scary part of repentance and being honest with God. And now he's moving into the next step of repentance that leads into lasting, refreshing, and joy. He's not just saying sorry, he's changing. So picking up in verse 9, Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Here, David is asking for help with the final step in the repentance journey. And all of these steps up until now have been like this reorientation. So imagine you're on the road, you're walking, and you're going the wrong direction, but you don't know it yet. So first step, you recognize that it's the wrong way. Then you have to reckon with how far you have walked in the wrong direction. Then you turn and you reorient towards the right way by being honest. And now you have this path of refreshment and life open to you. And now you have to take the steps. You have to walk the walk back. Part of repenting and saying, I was wrong, I'm sorry, is not just acknowledging that it was wrong, but changing and doing something different in the future. Now, my husband, Ryan, has historically been a late fellow. His concept of time is very loose and inaccurate, so being timely does not come naturally to him, which is fine. God has given him many other wonderful and amazing gifts that are far more important than adhering to the social construct of time. But at the beginning of our marriage, being late caused a fair amount of strife and conflict. I am, or I was, a rather punctual person. Um, and so we had a hard time trying to find this happy middle ground between his desires to not be quite as punctual and mine to be very punctual. Well, Ryan could have just said, I'm sorry, but that's how I am. And then continued to be late for anything and everything, regardless of how it hurt my feelings, but he didn't. His sorry wasn't just words, but was accompanied by steps to change. He began to recognize that he did not have a good sense of time, and he started relying on external reminders like alarms or calendar notifications to budget commute time for him. He reckoned with the impact his lateness had on others and their feelings about always waiting or feeling unimportant or overlooked. He chose the path of humility, and he started listening to when I said we needed to go, rather than when he thought we could still make it in time, because a very accurate sense of time is one of my gifts. Um, Ryan's I'm sorry meant something real, and it wasn't empty, because it was accompanied by steps to change. Part of the repentance journey is choosing to walk differently. Now, this isn't to say that Ryan was suddenly a walking Harold Crick or that his timeliness journey happened overnight. Perhaps you haven't noticed yet, but Ryan is now relatively on time. 
And again, I say relatively because walking differently is not about walking perfectly. God is not demanding perfection or that when we repent, it's only real if we never make a mistake again. That is not at all what I am saying. Ryan will be late sometime. Roland will certainly touch something that I told him not to touch again. I continue to fail even when I know it's wrong and I don't want to. This is not the last time in the Bible that David makes a mistake, a big mistake. Repentance is not about perfection, but it is about reorienting and returning home to God. And I appreciate how honest David here is about how difficult it is to change. His change is hard. If we were able to change so easily, we already would have done it. But David is not making promises or grand gestures or I'll never do it again. Instead, he is leaning deeply into God. He recognizes his own shortcomings and inability to do it on his own. And he asks God to do what he cannot in his own power. He asks God to create a clean heart. He asks God to renew a loyal spirit. He asks God to make him willing to obey. When we make all of these grand plans about how we're never going to do it again, how we'll be right next time, how we're going to be perfect, we set ourselves up for an impossible cycle of trying and failing and then shaming and hiding until we start the loop all over again. We cannot do it on our own power. We cannot change by ourselves. We can't walk differently without help. We have to ask for God's intervention, for the support of others, for a counselor's help, for a friend's help, for a group's help, and then hold tightly to the lifeline of God himself. And if you hold tightly to him and let him transform you, you will be able to walk differently. With God's grace and transforming love, we can actually change and realign our lives and life God's way. And that's refreshing. As John Mark Comer said before, repentance is not this like onerous, somber religious duty. It's a life-giving art, reorienting our hearts and our lives towards joy himself. Walking God's way feels good. And as we've gone through this journey of repentance with David, I think recognizing repentance as that, as a journey is really helpful because it removes this like false notion of repentance happening once and then being over. Repentance is really much more about relationship. John Mark Comer continues, some people think of repentance as a one-time act. But for followers of Jesus, repentance is a way of life. It's a way of life because repentance is this constant reorienting to life-giving relationship with Jesus. And that's what being a follower of Jesus is all about. Realigning, reorienting, recentering on Him. And repentance is just like one of those ways that we turn back home to Him. In the big, in the small, in the everyday, in the overwhelming. Repentance is not this box that you just like check off in your relationship um, to be right with God. It is restoring your relationship together. It's rechecking in. It's reconnecting. It's pursuing oneness again. 
David continues, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. God doesn't want you to just check off a box. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. When your heart seeks God, you will find him. And all it takes is your honesty and turning back to him and coming home. And perhaps you've been thinking, this repentance song is great, Megan, um, but I recall this being a series on worship. How does the practice of worship play into repentance? Excellent question. Well, you could sing David's song. I don't know what the tune is, but you could make something up. Or you could use a lot of the beautiful and wonderful music made by old and modern artists and musicians to help facilitate your repentance journey with God. The book of Romans talks about the spirit interceding for us through wordless groans. And I sometimes like to think of worship as a more tuneful version of wordless groans. Sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but I just like struggle with the words to say. Like I don't know how to get started um, in having this really difficult conversation with God, but worship can give me the words that I can't find. In surrendering to worship, I often find God interceding on my behalf, helping me through the difficult process of being honest and returning to Him. Now, worship and music can also be a really powerful vehicle to cry. And you might be thinking, cry? Cry? Who said anything about crying? Why does crying have to be a part of this? I hate crying. I know. I'm sorry. Um, but crying is actually very biologically good for you. It releases pent-up emotions, it calms your limbic system, it expels stress hormones, and crying is a place of vulnerability. Anyone here an ugly crier? I am. Um, my husband, Ryan, is a noble crier, you know, like single tear glistening down the cheek, um, but not me. I am forced out of hiding when I cry. I have to let myself be seen not as put together and aloof, but as vulnerable and raw when I'm crying. And really good music gets me. Sometimes worship can be the vehicle that helps me to engage with this vulnerable part of repentance and being seen by God through tears. And maybe it can do that for you too. Now I wanna be clear that songs are not the point. Um, there's nothing magic about David Crowder or strumming an electric guitar. It's not simply singing songs or raising up your hands in church that form the basis of repentance. The practice of worship is not the point. The returning to God is the point. And the practice of worship can just sometimes be that vehicle. Amos warns us not to elevate just the external show, underlining that it is the heart condition behind the singing that matters a thousand times more than the singing. This is God talking through Amos. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. 
It is not about the music, the lyrics, how high you lift your hands. It's about your heart behind the worship. A life that is aligned with God, a returning that is evidenced by how you walk, how you stumble, and how you hold tight to God's hands. Like Devin was saying last week, view worship as a spiritual practice. But the point of the spiritual practice is to lead us to God. And when we're restored to relationship with God, praise and worship may be your response. This is David. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. Because God is good. He is so, so good. And it's such a comfort and joy and refreshment to fall in his arms, to be held by him, to walk life side by side with him. So remember the journey of repentance. First, we need to recognize our rebellion. What are the ways that you've gone wrong? Do you need to ask a Nathan to speak into your life to you to help you see where your blind spots are with a second pair of eyes? Then we need to reckon with our rebellion. We need to actually understand the gravity of what we've done, the impact that it's had on other people, um, really understand what it is that we are repenting for. And then from there, we need to be honest, honest with God, honest with others. Um, and this honesty is that turning back point, that reorientation back to God. And that leaves room for refreshing. So when we make that honesty, when we come out of hiding and shame and get into the light with God, that opens up restored relationship and a chance for our lives to realign with God, to do life His way, the good way. And then that leads us into the last step to walk differently. We need to actually change. Um, Let our sorrow be real and mean something and choose to walk differently, relying on God and His power and not your own. Now, I don't know what you're struggling with or what wrongs you might be holding on to today, what's weighing on your heart, but I invite you to take that next step in your journey of repentance and come back home to God. Let your life be an art of repentance. This constant reorientation, this recentering, this re-engaging in the life of love and joy and peace and refreshment that is life with God, because this is true worship. Romans 12, 1 reminds us, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for imperfect people who can model for us how to make mistakes and then how to come back home, Lord. Um, I pray for each person here as we do our repentance journey, Lord, and recognizing that all of life is this art of repentance because repentance is just coming back to you, God. I pray for help in dealing with our shame messages and um, the struggles that we have with our identities, 
when we are wrestling and reckoning with the wrongs that we have done, Lord. I ask for honesty um, to not choose denying or hiding, but to choose you and to choose turning back to you and to choose honesty, God. And I ask for your help um, in making new choices. It's hard, God, and we can't do it on our own power. So I ask for all of us to lean deeply into you, into your grace, into your loving arms, um, into your help. Thank you for being such a good God, Lord, who deals so kindly with our mistakes, who loves us so, so desperately. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.